0: There's actually photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time.
2: They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape.
0: Good evening, listeners.
2: Good evening, listeners.
0: Good evening, listeners. listeners. You're tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Grace Dietzler.
2: And I'm Joseph Valencia. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students and postdoctoral fellows in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of the students each week. If you are a graduate student or a postdoc at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out more about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests and links to our Twitter and podcast pages.
0: Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and today we are lucky to be joined by Schmidty Thompson. Schmidty is a fourth-year PhD candidate in the geology department within the College of Earth, Ocean, and Atmospheric Sciences. Schmidty uses they-them they, them pronouns, and welcome to the show.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here.
0: Well, we are super excited to have you. Um, so... You are in the geology department, but your research is pretty interdisciplinary. Uh, But before we get into kind of the specifics of that, I kind of wanted to start with like a broad overview of what it is that you're studying. So can you tell us a little bit about what exactly an ice sheet is?
1: Yeah. So I study the interactions between sort of ice sheets, which are these large glaciers that cover entire continents and the climate and the oceans and so just a little bit of background is you know you might have seen the movie ice age when you were growing up but uh part of the reality of the last two and a half million years of our planet is that we've been going in and out of ice ages where over about a hundred thousand years the planet will cool down and all this ice will grow on the continents and then it rapidly warms up and so specifically the thing that drives that are ice sheets so you may have heard of a glacier and so a glacier usually is we think about something that exists in a mountain and it's a mass of ice where snow piles up year and year and year and it compacts and turns into ice. And then once that ice gets big enough, just like silly putty, it actually starts to yeah. flow under its own weight. Mm-hmm. And so a glacier forms and you get ice big enough that it lasts throughout the year and it starts to flow. And so you can think of a glacier as a mass, one of these massive sort of rivers of ice that hangs out usually in a valley, in a mountain, And then sometimes when you get glaciers grow large enough, they actually overtake the mountains or whatever environment that they're growing in. And once they start to overtake everything around them and their flow isn't controlled by the land around them, it's Mm -hmm. controlled by just this sheer massive... um, like massive ice that they have, once they start to cover things like a continent, then it becomes an ice sheet. And so on our planet today, we have two major ice sheets. There's the Greenland ice sheet. So you might have heard the funny thing with Greenland and Iceland is that Greenland is covered in ice and Iceland actually has green on it. Mm -hmm. And so the entire island of Greenland is covered by ice. Sometimes that's up to a couple kilometers thick. And then the other famous ice sheet we have is Antarctica. So Antarctica is a continent that covers the South Pole. And pretty much the entirety of Antarctica is also covered in ice. So again, this is ice that at some points can be multiple kilometers thick.
0: Wow.
2: So an ice sheet is kind of like a glacier that has escaped from the constraints of <laughs> yeah. I to- topography. And ice yeah. sheet does what it wants. Yeah.
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah, the ice sheets do what they want. They are so powerful that they can pretty much do whatever they want. And so actually people might not know this, but if you go to Antarctica, there are there's a mountain range, the Trans Antarctic Mountains underneath the ice sheet but you don't usually think about there being mountains in Antarctica wow. right. because yeah. you can't see them underneath the ice. They're
0: underneath the ice. They're underneath
1: the ice. They some, sometimes they poke out huh. above the ice, That's but an, they'd be pretty wow. dramatic mountains if there wasn't an ice sheet there.
0: Wow. That's amazing. And so so those are the two ice sheets that we have on the planet right now, but historically there have been a couple more.
1: Yes, we've had a lot of ice sheets that are no longer with us today. So The two big ones that we usually think about when we're thinking about the earth coming in and out of ice ages are the ice sheets that covered North America. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So in the past, there has been ice over Patagonia and there has been ice over sort of um, the northern parts of Europe. But the big ice sheets are the North American ice sheets. And so they essentially covered all of Canada. And so that is there are two ice sheets there. There's the largest one is the Laurentide ice sheet, which covered most of central and eastern Canada and then the other ice sheet is called the Cordilleran ice sheet. So you may mm. have known that we in Queen Corvallis are in the Cordilleran region, mm. and so the Cordilleran ice sheet grew all the way along the western coast of Canada. And eventually, those two ice sheets, the Laurentide and the Cordilleran ice sheets, grew separately, but they got so big that they met in the middle, <laughs> and so eventually we had one large uh, mass of ice that covered pretty much all of Canada, and then it reached. All the way down into the United States, so the Laurentide Ice Sheet it hit Chicago, it hit New York, it hit Boston, um, so it it made it a significant like a significant ways into the United States at its largest.
0: So, so these ice sheets were hundreds or even thousands of miles across, and yeah. and even like you said, kilometers mm-hmm. miles thick as well.
1: Yeah, it's hard to it's it's hard to imagine sometimes yeah. just the scale of these ice sheets. I don't have the numbers off the top of my head but there's great graphics you can look up where if you're standing in Chicago or in Boston, how many, like how much ice would be above your head? Mm-hmm. So I think in a lot wow. of cases, these cities, you wouldn't be able to see any buildings Yeah, because yeah. there'd just be ice. It'd be like yeah.
0: the, the mountains under Antarctica. Just... <laughs> I,
1: I
2: had no idea it was so concentrated around North America, these, these ice ages. Do we know anything about what was going on in the rest of the planet when, mm-hmm. when we were covered with ice here?
1: Yeah, so we do have pretty good records about where the ice sheets were because ice sheets are not subtle. Um, They leave really dramatic impacts on their landscapes, and so sort of the most dominant record we have about ice sheets is when an ice sheet is growing, it kind of acts like a bulldozer, and so as it's moving across the landscape, it just pushes anything it can scrape off the ground in front of it. And so just like a bulldozer, when it moves to its furthest extent, there's a huge pile of debris in front of it, and once it retreats, it leaves that pile of debris where its furthest extent was, and so that's called a moraine. And so as the ice sheets were growing and then eventually as they retreated, they left these moraines, which are like these perfect little impressions of where the ice sheets were. Hmm. And then ice sheets, they also have a bit of a habit of getting rid of any loose sediment and soil that's on top. So um, typically regions that have had ice sheets go over them don't have as developed soils because Uh periodically every 100,000 years, the ice sheets scraped everything away down to bare bedrock.
0: So they play a pre- pretty big role in um, kind of determining the ge- geography of the area, mm-hmm. I guess, um, or the the topography. I think is yeah. the word I'm looking for there. Um, and and part of what you're interested in specifically is is their role in shaping the coastlines or the shorelines.
1: Yeah, exactly. So I'm really interested in how the ice sheets interact with the world around them. Mm-hmm. And so ice sheets have a few major ways that they influence our planet. And so one of the ways, a lot of them are just related to the fact that they are so big. And so one of the ways that an ice sheet impacts the world around it is when you put an ice sheet that's this large on a continent it actually depresses the land underneath it so it mm-hmm. pushes it down just like when you're sitting on a mattress that's called isostatic depression mm-hmm. and so when the ice sheets pushes down on the ground underneath it it's not just empty there's not an empty space underneath the ground there is there's the earth's crust which is this hard layer on the surface of the planet And then there's the mantle, which is really hot, squishy rock. And so when an ice sheet pushes down on it, the land underneath it depresses. But then there's all this, there's the rest of the planet underneath there. And so the material that's pushed down underneath it has to go somewhere. So all this hot, squishy rock of the mantle moves around to the outside of the ice sheet and forms what we call the peripheral bulge. So a comparison that people like to use is if you put a mattress on top of a waterbed and sat down on that. You can imagine your butt would sink into the mattress. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And you get this little bulge around you. And then the other thing that I'm really interested in about the way that our ice sheets impact the world around us is actually related to the interactions between ice sheets, our oceans, and gravity. And so ice sheets are really incredibly large and they have an effect on the oceans, kind of similar to what the moon does. So our moon, even though it's far away, is so large that as it's orbiting on our planet, its gravitational field pulls on the ocean and creates the tides. And so when an ice sheet grows, it grows so large that it exerts a gravitational pull on the water around it. And when it grows, it draws water up towards it and holds it there. So in the periphery of like when you're really close to the edge of an ice sheet, sea level at the coastline has actually gone up, Mm. even though water is getting trapped in the ice sheets and coming out of the oceans because that ice sheet is so large that it's pulling the water up right next to it.
0: So it's not like a bathtub where you have kind of a even uh, level of the water all around. It's it's affected by, these, by the gravitational pull of these ice sheets.
1: Yeah, exactly. And you can imagine, so the gravity affects sort of the way sea level looks on our coastlines. And you can imagine, too, that because when, the, when we put an ice sheet on a continent, the actual solid Earth underneath it moves around, that also affects sea level because... Um, you can change sea level by rate changing the surface of the ocean. And you can also change it by changing the ground underneath it Mm. because that affects the space between the bottom of like the the ground surface and the top of the ocean.
2: Right. So the earth not only can escape sort of above ground, but it can sort of bulge outward underneath the the ice sheet is what you're saying?
1: Yeah, exactly. So like when you have, when you're right up next to an ice sheet, you have gravity pulling sea level around it. You have gravity pulling the water up towards it. But then when you have that bulge form around the edge of the ice sheet, that changes the space and pushes mm-hmm. water around. And so that also leads to changes in what sea level is. And so you can imagine all of this sort of like you have to take a lot of physics into account. It's like the physics of how gravity pulls on the ocean and the physics of how an ice sheet pushes the crust around. So it's a, really comp- it's a much more complicated system mm. than a lot of people imagine when they think about sea level change.
0: And and you're looking at sea level change 80,000 years ago, right? Yeah, 80,000
1: years ago is the time period that I'm sort of really interested in right now. So
0: not something that you can go out and actively observe. So you kind of have to use other methods to determine.
1: Yeah, exactly. So there's, I know there's, I wish I had a time machine that would make my life so much (laughs) easier. But we do have little snapshots of what the planet looked like. So, you know, one of the components of my research is that I study like, I study the effects of the ice sheets and one key sort of record that I can use is the geologic record. So that's sort of where the geology part of my job comes in is if you've ever been out to a coastline, especially here on the West Coast, say if you've ever been to Newport and you're walking up and down the coast and you look up towards the land, you might see these kind of stair-stepping looking platforms. And then if you go down to a rocky beach like a Depot Bay, there's these big rocky platforms mm. all along the coast. And so... When the waterline at a coastline is steady for a few hundred to a few thousand years, it carves this flat surface into the coastline next to it. And then when that, um, when sea level changes and our tectonic plates move upwards gradually over time, that raises essentially that beach out of the range of the ocean. And I can go take all this data that people, so people have been going around sort of the coastlines of North America and studying Um, All these ancient shorelines, they've been doing that for about 100 years. And so I can take their data and say, like, okay, these little shorelines that have been lifted out of the range of the ocean, I can look at that and say, okay, I think I know, like, what the tectonic plate has been doing. So I can move that shoreline up and down and say, okay, 80,000 years ago, what does this ancient shoreline say about what sea level was? So I have about 30 sites that I use data from all across North America that are my little individual snapshots at these one at this one location on earth about what sea level was doing
0: so your particular degree is going your PhD is in geology but from what you're talking about it sounds like there's a lot of different disciplines that are involved here you've got historical records you've got physics um, it, can you talk a little bit about what uh, some of the other fields that your work intersects with and what it's like working in such an interdisciplinary area
1: yeah. No, it's it's a lot of fun and it doesn't make it hard sometimes because my education, my edu- um, I have an education in sort of math and then I have an education in geology. So I know what to do studying these shorelines. But when I came into the research that I did today, I had to learn about some very specific fields of mathematics. I have to learn a lot about physics. So again, the physics of how gravity works, the physics of how ice sheets move, the mm-hmm. physics of how the like solid earth so the earth's crust and the mantle the physics of how they move around i had to learn a lot about that um and then sort of the practicality of actually doing the research that i do i had to learn a lot about computer science so how to take these really high level complex equations and break them down into code that i can then run to simulate what this time period i'm interested in looked like
2: and is there a direct way that you can link those sort of two strains you talked about of one looking at the physical evidence from the coastlines and then the the models that you're, that you're building on the computer. Is there any correspondence between how you can look and say, verify your models with those?
1: Yeah. So essentially like those are the two different sort of lenses I look with and they always meet in the middle. Mm-hmm. So you can look at the geologic record and say like, these are really great snapshots because this is, this is grounded in reality. This is what the planet actually looked like. But it's only telling me, each site only tells me what the world looked like at that specific site. And when I'm using my models, I'm making predictions, and my models know a lot about what's going on. They know about how much ice, they know, what the distrib- they know where the ice was distributed, they know how much water was in the oceans, but essentially they're predictions. So they're not, they're as accurate as I can make them, but they're not going to be perfect. And so the way that they meet in the middle is I have my observational data, and then I have my model. And so I run my model, and I say, okay, model... What are the predictions at each of the sites that I actually have data for and I compare those two? And so by looking at how well does my model agree with the actual geologic data, I can say, okay, maybe the model has really smooth trends and the data might be outside of those trends. So is there something going on with my data? Is there something going on with my model? So I can look at what might be inconsistent that way. And then the real goal of mine is to get models that fit really well with my data, because if I can get a model that fits really well or I can get a range of models that fit really well, then I can say, OK, the information, all the other information that my model knows, that's more likely to be correct. And so from there, I can start making more and more inferences about what the world looked like beyond what the geologic record says.
2: Right.
0: And, and what is the sensitivity of these models? I guess what is the, the resolution of like year time span resolution that you can get down to?
1: Yeah, so you can get down to as fine as you want. Um, The model, essentially, when you tell the model, like, okay, so when I run my model, I have to say it, okay, here, at each time step that I define, here's what the ice sheets look like. And then I have to tell it what does the interior of the planet look like. And so you can make the resolution as fine as you want. So some models um, run on really, really short time scales, so maybe, like, years to tens of years. When I run my model, I run it um, looking over the past 250,000 years. So if I was to run it on scale of years that would take a very long time and so i run it at thousand year intervals Mm. but the limitation for like how fine your resolution can be isn't what is the model capable of is what is how much time are you as the researcher willing (laughs) to put into doing this
2: trade-offs like that this has got to make for some cool visualizations too right are there ways that you can kind of watch a movie of how uh, your model predicts that the ice would have evolved over this time
1: that's actually that's something I'd love to explore further and so the way that I usually look at it is I just look at one time step at usually I look at one time step at a time because mm. if I'm looking at a map of sea level over the entire planet it's easiest just to make a map for like example for years ago mm. and then I can look at trends over time where I look at all of my time steps and I say what does sea level look like at this one site but I'm really interested in trying to find ways that I can make Animations, like to see if I can maybe, like, if I have 250,000, not 250,000, 250 maps, so 250,000 years at a thousand year intervals, like, is there a way I could somehow animate that? But I unfortunately, I love art, but I do not have a lot of computer based artistic talent. And so I would love to, like, connect with someone who does animation and see, like, okay, how can, like, your incredible skill set help me visualize this science? Because, um, the only way that I can look at my model data is through visualizing it. And so I get as Mm -hmm. creative as I can. And I have a lot of fun experimenting with different ways to look at my data, especially if the project is a project that uses thousands of model runs. But I think there's still a lot of progress to be made on ways to like creatively and accessibly visualize the kind of data that I use.
0: It's such a great way to just like observe the changes, um, especially for someone who maybe
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, like me, doesn't understand really what the numbers are, mm-hmm. what numbers are happening, yeah. but, but looking at a visual. And <laughs> it's funny you mentioned that because I actually just recently learned to use a package in R called gganimate mm-hmm. <laughs> that can essentially do that. But I, yeah, so it'd be cool to see if that can be applied to maps.
1: Yeah, if someone so, can point me towards an equivalent package in Python, yeah. that'd be great.
0: So you use, um, how many different models you use or do you run, I guess?
1: Yeah. So there's two different kinds of models that I work with. Um, The one that if I was to be running a model myself, I'm going to use what we call a 1D model. So when I have my model, essentially I tell it, here's what the ice sheets did. Here's what the solid earth looks like. Go do physics on that. Mm -hmm. And one of the limitations that a model can have is what does the interior of the planet look like? And so a 1D model the interior of the earth essentially looks like a gumball or a jawbreaker so all of the layers are the same as you move around the planet so in 1d model the crust is going to be the same thickness everywhere and the different layers of the mantle are going to be the same essentially squishiness everywhere and that is really helpful because it means that i can run this on my model in minutes um, but it's not super accurate and so then the other kind of model that i use in my work is what's called a 3d model where a 3D model, we're able to make a really, give it a really realistic picture of what the interior of the Earth looks like. So that shows like all the different tectonic plates and mm-hmm. all the different variations and like what's going on deep in our Earth. But those take weeks to run. Wow. So it's a, it's a big leap in, it's a big leap in accuracy, but it's also a big leap in computation time. And also the sort of level of experience it takes to run the model.
0: So kind of useful for different things. Yeah, exactly.
1: So one of the projects I'm working on right now, I'm using these simple 1D models, but so they're not necessarily the most accurate thing in the world, but because they can run in so quickly, I think so far for the project I'm working on, I've run like 5,000 models. And so I can work with these huge groups of them to try and sort of simulate the kind of results I'd get with a 3D model.
2: So this might be a complicated question, especially because you're running 5,000 different models, but Mm -hmm. are there any sort of, takeaway trends that you could say um, about the general question of how did these sea levels fluctuate over time? What is the relationship with the ice levels? Um, Yeah, just anything like that.
1: Yeah, no, that's great. That's a great question. And so that's something that um, I've been working on this question for about three years now, and we are starting to be able to see some results. And so trying to reconstruct what sea level was like um, throughout the last ice age. So essentially it started. Well, the world started cooling again about 125,000 years ago, and it cooled all the way until 21,000 years ago. Okay. But that cooling trend wasn't linear. It didn't just drop. And so over time, the planet cooled, and then it warmed up a bit, and then it cooled, and then I warmed up a bit. And it's one of those little intermediate warmings that I'm interested in because depending on how you're trying to reconstruct, like how, warm did the, how much did the planet actually warm up, how much ice was actually on the continents, that can be really difficult. And so one thing that my research is finding is that our, probably during this time period 80,000 years ago, or if you want to be really fancy about it, marine isotope stage 5A, <laughs> um, there's probably a lot less ice. There might have been a lot less ice on the, pla- on the planet than we were anticipating, than we have previously thought.
0: Interesting.
2: And so as it's fluctuating like that, is that connecting it back to the the fact about the North American ice, is that just the North American ice kind of turning on and off or is this global?
1: Yeah, well, that's that's actually a really good question that I'm trying to explore. But you were pretty sure that it was the North American ice because in terms of the capacity of how much ice are different, like the different ice sheets that grow, how much ice they can hold. The, in terms of what would grow between a climate state like today and between the height of an ice age, the North American ice sheets have the most capacity. So Antarctica is already really big, but it can only grow so much because it's limited by the continental shelf. So the ice sheet mm. can grow sort of closer to the continental shelf because the bottom of the ocean is still pretty close to the surface. But once it hits the edge of the continental shelf, it can't, you know, go down five. code can't go down six or seven kilometers, and then the Greenland ice sheet is also already pretty big, so it can only expand so much further. And we can't fit, you can't fit that much ice in uh, Eurasia. And so for the most part, when our ice sheets are growing, it's the North American ice sheet that has the largest storage capacity. So that's usually the ice sheet that we pinpoint.
2: Interesting, because I was just about to say Eurasia. That seems like there's a lot of real estate to to put ice on that.
1: um, The kind of ice for like an ice sheet to grow, it has to be a pretty specific part on the planet. So it has to be sort of this mid to high latitude area because if you're trying to grow an ice sheet for example in like the southern united states or in certain parts of europe then it's never going to get cold enough in the summers Mm -hmm. for you to actually grow an ice sheet there and so then um depending on like when your ice sheet's growing sometimes there's you know topographical bounds that even an ice sheet can't grow beyond wow
0: oh interesting like um any of the any mountain ranges or anything we might recognize?
1: I don't know that off the top okay. of my head.
0: I was just curious. I was thinking about these um, ice <laughs> sheets over North America, and I was wondering if like the, like the Rockies were under them, or is that a little too far south?
1: No, I think the Rockies extend pretty far up into Canada. I don't know exactly where they were in relation to the ice sheets, but if they weren't completely covered, they still probably got pretty heavily inundated with ice. Wow.
0: So talking about ice sheets kind of, um, coming and going and, Mm -hmm. and, uh, melting Mm -hmm. (laughs) a topic on a lot of folks' minds these days Mm -hmm. is the warming climate and melting ice caps. You hear a Mm -hmm. lot about that. Mm -hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit more about how current climate patterns are different maybe from what we'd expect? You mentioned that we had an ice age, uh, 125,000 years ago, and Mm -hmm. then we went into a warming period.
1: Yeah. So, um, Yeah, so 125,000 years ago, the climate was pretty... It was actually a little bit warmer, we think, than Mm. present day. And then the climate sort of cooled. And then it cooled all the way until about 21,000 years ago when it was, I think, like five... It was pretty... It was a lot colder than it is today. So again, that's when, like, these North American ice sheets reached all the way to Chicago. And then pretty rapidly, it warmed up and all that ice melted. And so if we're looking at the sort of um, climate the things the things that force our climate to change over time the natural forcings we would not be seeing this much warming mm. right now mm. so if you look at you can look at we have records saying like okay in general what is the climate how has the climate changed over times and if you add on our present day warming onto these climate records it's just like gradual change gradual change gradual change spike big discontinuity big yeah. spike pretty yeah pretty much vertical wow so it's um even just like if you even if you don't necessarily know, like the physics of how the climate system works, if you just look at a plot of climate change over of the changing temperature of our mm-hmm. planet over time, it's pretty obvious that something drastic is happening.
2: And do you think um, any of these methods that you use for historical analysis of mm-hmm. these patterns have anything to say about the future um, in, in this regard?
1: yeah no so the kind of um patterns that i'm studying that's sort of one of the biggest questions that's driving the field right now is how can our study of the past inform what the planet is going to look like in the future so part of the reason that a lot of people are interested in little warming periods like this is trying to link between okay if we know the temperature warmed up two degrees celsius um what ice sheets collapsed it's like how much ice melted during that time so part of the reason that I'm, we're so interested in things like sea level is because there's a direct relationship between how much water is in the oceans and how much ice is on land. Because when you're growing ice, um, all that snow is, is in the beginning coming from water evaporated out of the oceans. Mm-hmm. So when water is moving through the hydrologic system and falling as snow onto ice sheets, that's water that's not going to flow back into the oceans. And so um, when I'm figuring out that, for example, sea level was a bit higher than we thought it would be. 80,000 years ago, that means that there's less ice on the continents, which might mean that, you know, the ice sheets would have, either they were smaller to begin with, or they may have melted more. And so there, there's, people are, we're starting to sort of come to the conclusions about how sensitive ice sheets are, but it's really, um, we don't have any necessarily definitive answers yet, but that's definitely one of the broadest questions that's driving this whole field of ice age sea level.
2: And in turn, stuff like that could inform our awareness of how much in contemporary times the ice sheets are melting.
1: Yeah, exactly. So like sort of the two ways that it can do that is one by refining our techniques. So to find sort of refining how we use our models, we can use that to actually try and predict, like make some quantitative predictions about how sea level is going to change. But in the end, our climate is a really dynamic system. And we can, we can try to predict what's going to happen, but there's always going to be an element of just, we just have to wait, wait and see. And so, um, you know, we can try and model that or we can try and study the past to like, OK, how has this complex system behaved in the past? So what can that tell us about what might happen in the future?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: If you're just now tuning in, you're listening to KBVR Corvallis. This is Inspiration Dissemination. And we're chatting with Schmidt Thompson about their research on ice sheets, sea levels uh, and m- modeling those with uh, with computer models. Um, but I think we're going to kind of pivot a little bit here into how you ended up here at, in the graduate program at OSU.
1: Yeah, that's, so it's been a sort of long meandering path. Um, I suppose I can start at the very beginning, which was, I first knew I was interested in geology as a whole. Um, I was, it was my first summer away at a way summer camp and I met, I was going on a canoe trip. And the woman who was the guide for our canoe trip had just graduated with her degree in geology. Mm-hmm. And I'd never met a geologist before. And I've, I don't even, I've, I do not even i have i do always liked rocks, but I just latched onto that. Like, oh my God, you can study rocks for a living. That's so <laughs> cool. And so I remember I was helping us pack up food. And coincidentally, the woman who was like in charge of the food for the summer camp was also a geologist. She just graduated her, her degree in geology. So I remember loudly announcing to this whole group that I'm going to be a geologist when I grow <laughs> up. And so that idea followed me through middle school and high school. And um, after a while, I didn't have a lot of exposure to earth science in high school. And so it was like, OK, this is great, but maybe this isn't realistic. And then my very first when I um, started college, they assigned me an advisor in the geology department. And as soon as I took my first day of the physical geology class, I knew, OK, this is it. This is what I'm doing with my life. Um, no regrets. And so I've been been studying geology ever since. And so I was really lucky. We have an amazing college I went to was a Northland college in Ashland, Wisconsin, which is a small liberal arts college. And uh, our geology department was two professors, but I got really lucky. And they all the um, one of the professors switched partway through my time there. But they were all really incredible. They're incredible scientists. They're incredible mentors. And they were really sparked a love of studying the planet in me. And so that really drove me through college and inspired me to apply to some internships and so my undergraduate advisor actually came to Northern College from his postdoc here at OSU and so he helped me get connected with people here and so I got um, an REU which internship which is an internship funded by the National Science Foundation and so I spent a summer here in at OSU and I really liked it and um, I called emailed a bunch of professors in the department like hey you do cool research, let's talk. And that is how I connected with my current advisor. And so, yeah, that's the rest is history. And now I'm starting year four, which is hard to believe.
0: So you're making, you're making little you so proud.
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I like to think so.
2: Did the sort of the geographic features of Oregon or anything like that influence where you were applying to grad school? Because I, I figured like you wouldn't be working on a coastal... Um, sea levels maybe if you were in the center of the country or something like that that
1: yeah so um, mostly what brought me here wasn't necessarily like the location to the coastline it was the people here and so I do love Oregon Um, maybe not the biggest fan of the winters but like all the mountains I love being at the coast Um, that's been really special to me but the thing that drew me into OSU and drew me into my college COS was the people around me. So it was a really incredible community. All of the other interns were so supportive. All the graduate students I talked to were so supportive. So that was sort of the main thing that drew me in. And then the research project followed my, um, was something I picked up when I got here. So that it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily the, like the specific project that I'm working on that drew me here.
0: I feel like that's such an, underrated but such an important aspect of picking mm-hmm. a graduate program mm-hmm. is the people and yeah. the support network that you can get
1: yeah absolutely that has been um the highlight of my time here at osu is the community of graduate students around me they're all incredible they're um it's such a lovely supportive community and i can't i can't imagine my life without the people that i've met here
2: very so, cool and with it being such an interdisciplinary field i figure you're Probably drawing on your peers a lot or collectively to to work on some of these issues, right? Exactly.
1: No, it's a very, it's really great to be able to just walk down the hallway Mm. and discuss research ideas or turn around in my office and get to sort of run problems by the other graduate students around me.
0: So often in grad school, it feels like we're kind of in this alone, but that's really not the case.
1: No, we're definitely not.
0: Mm. So you, you mentioned briefly, um, but can you expand a little bit on your research during your RU and maybe how that differs from kind of what you're looking at now?
1: Yeah. So during my RU, I was still interested in sort of the way that the climate was changing uh, during the ice ages. So in this case, this was looking at a different ice sheet. So I was looking at the Antarctic ice sheet and I was looking at uh, the kind of techniques that I was using is I wasn't using a model that talked about sea level. I was using what's called a climate model. And so a climate model is essentially a model that has in it all the math that describes how the oceans circulate and how the atmosphere changes. So that tells you things about things like ocean currents and atmospheric temperature. And so what I was doing with that model is essentially I set up the model around Antarctica and dumped a bunch of fresh water there to sort of imitate what would happen if we melted some of the ice off Antarctica. And then I watched how the oceans and the atmosphere responded to that. So it was sort of looking at the same time period but it was a different um sort of looking at a different system.
2: That's very interesting that you you just use an injection of water as like a a surrogate for what you're looking at maybe? Yeah, exactly,
1: yeah. essentially. So um the way that the ocean circulate is very dependent on where are you putting fresh water into the oceans? Because when you put a bunch of fresh water into an ocean, that fresh water sits on top of the ocean like a cap and means that it actually can affect the way that the ocean is circulating. And so that's something that we're really, really important to understanding the climate of the past is how, where was the fresh water from ice sheets melting, entering the oceans and how did that affect the way the oceans were circulating? So there's mm-hmm. some great people here in Co who so are working that, on that right now.
0: Yeah, I would imagine it, it, Probably has a big effect on things like the salinity.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Just
0: all that influx of fresh water. So what do you think the future holds for you? What do you want to do next? You're you're pretty close to finishing, right?
1: Yes, that's something that's on my mind every day. <laughs> um, I'm not working out exact plans, but I know that I love research. I love the really technical, nitty-gritty side put me in front of some code that's only vaguely working for five hours, Great. give me some music. I will sit there for five hours, no problem. So I really like the technical side because when it comes to working with climate models, it's a really fun balance of like understanding the science and understanding the mathematics and then understanding the code and like the practicality of getting code to run is really satisfying. So like that iteration I love, but then the other thing that I really want to do with my career is science communication. So one thing that I'm deeply passionate about is talking about earth science. And so, you know, I love coming doing things like this and talking about the amazing research I get to do, but I also just love talking about geology. So whether it's earthquakes, volcanoes, identifying rocks, um, all of that stuff, I will just, I love talking about it to anyone who will listen.
0: And your science communication uh, resume is is pretty impressive. You're an OMSI science communication fellow, you're involved with the nationwide Skype a Scientist program, and you were recently on the podca- podcast Ologies with Ali Ward. Um, can you talk about why SCICOM is so important? And, you know, we, we're we huge fans yeah. of <laughs> SCICOM on this
1: show. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I think there's sort of like two underlying reasons behind why I do it. And so sort of the first broad one is that we are all... We're all we all live on this planet, and we are all part of a community with the planet around us. And um, you know, humans today we have such a large impact on the planet, especially through things like greenhouse gas, gas emissions and climate change. And I think helping people understand the way that our Earth system works, so the way that. Uh, For example, things like the interactions between the oceans and the ice sheets and greenhouse gases can be important for understanding context about why climate change is happening. But then also, you know, geology is all around us. So, for example, all of us here living in Oregon, it's really important that we it can be really important to understand about how earthquakes work because Mm -hmm. we live so close to a major subduction zone Mm -hmm. or maybe someone lives next to a volcano. And it can be helpful to understand how that, you know, what is it like? Like, what are the dangers of living next to a volcano? And so I think Earth science is Earth science education is something that can be lacking, especially in K through twelve schools. I know there's really amazing teachers out there who are working to bring Earth science into their classrooms, but I really want to do everything I am, can to support that, so that way everyone can get a chance to learn about the planet. I don't necessarily think that everyone I go talk to should go become a, another geologist, but I think that teaching you know teaching a hundred people how to appreciate the planet around them versus helping teach five people to go get their PhDs. I think getting to teach people just to appreciate the planet and to know a little more and to understand a little more about it, that to me is really what I see as important. And then the other reason is uh, a little more small, which is that I just think it's neat. (laughs) I love the earth. I love geology. I'm inspired. You know, every little new thing I learn about it is inspiring and um, I find that people are really excited to learn about geology. So when I go and I introduce myself to someone I've never met before and I say, hey, I'm a geologist, they get really excited because a lot of people haven't had a chance. And I get I get emails every now and then asking me to identify rocks. I, get, I once got a call from someone who was um, in the car on the highway and they were having an argument with their boyfriend about why a road cut looked the way it did. <laughs> that was an amazing highlight. And just like the, I love, I have this like, it's just so joyous to me talking and like learning about the way that our planet works. And I love getting to share that with people because people tend to get really excited because this, this world that we live in is amazing.
2: And I understand you start them pretty young, right? You're doing outreach with, with some elementary school kids first. Yes,
1: exactly. So, um, for example, last, this last winter, I got to virtually visit a fourth grade classroom in Toronto and they, they were really amazing and they had such great questions. And so definitely the highlight of that, um, the greatest question I've ever been asked. So, <laughs> you know, I, I like to joke them in 20th grade because I'm in my 20th straight year of being a student. But in all of the seminars I've ever been to and all the classes I've ever taken, the great, greatest question anyone's ever asked me was this fourth grader who they were really into artificial diamonds. That's mm-hmm. somehow a topic we got on, which is. Not something I've ever researched, um, but they were curious about it. So we talked about it and this kid came up and asked, could you turn peanut butter into a diamond? <laughs> um, just what a great question. I had to stop and think about it for a second and think, OK, peanut butter, you know, plants are carbon based. Diamonds are made out of carbon under really intense heat and pressure. So, you know, theoretically, if you could somehow get the carbon out of the peanut butter, you know, you could probably turn it into a diamond and like that simple question really made me think about like everything I know about biology and food science and um, like high temperature mineral physics. And, you know, if I had, if I hadn't been able to go talk to this group of fourth graders, I never would have gotten to, you know, think that deeply about something like that. So I think, yeah, no, it's just, yeah, little kids have the best questions.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I would never think to ask something like that, but Mm -hmm. it's, It's a really great question.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You know, I find that, you know, everyone from, you know, little kids to adults, they all have, they're all like, they all can, everyone, everyone has the capacity to be really excited about this stuff. And so when I think about like the kind of outreach that I'm interested in doing, I typically don't think, well, I'm really aiming for this age. It's, I try to think about like, okay, if I'm, you know, if I have the opportunity to talk to people at this age, like where do they want? where can I meet them at? So like, what are they interested in talking about? Because I think that can be a lot more useful to, uh, in bringing science to an educational system of saying like, okay, you know, I have this amazing body of knowledge that I've been able to gather. So like, what, what do you need? Like, what do you want to get out of it? And I think that's the fun thing about doing more informal science outreach is, you know, when you're talking to people about science, you're not grading them on getting A, B, and C away Mm -hmm. from the experience. Like, you're allowed to go where they're interested in. Mm -hmm.
0: Let their curiosity drive the the conversation.
1: It can take you to some really fun places.
2: Definitely. We should all strive to be as curious as a a fourth grader about (laughs) science, right? Yeah, well, um, that was a fun anecdote. Um, Maybe we'll move on to um, what are a few of our Traditions here at um, ID, and one of them is which we just always ask you, what is your favorite thing about what you research?
1: Awesome. So my favorite thing about what I research is probably just this joy when I, through you know, the many month-long process of setting up my model, doing all the background reading, like trying to be really deliberate about each step of the process, like making sure this data that I'm using has been correctly formatted, processed. And at the end, when I sit down on my laptop and I'm plotting out my results and seeing that all this work that I put into what are essentially numbers. So I have numbers that talk about the interior of the earth. I have numbers that talk about the ice sheets. I have numbers that are the physics of sea level. And at the end, getting out all of these numbers that correspond to what the planet looked like 80,000 years ago, like watching all of those steps pay off and getting to learn something new about what our planet looked like just through the sheer power of math yeah. like it's it's amazing it blows my mind every time that I'm able to do this
2: shouldn't work that well right <laughs> no it should how does it work that well i don't know
1: it's magical
0: <laughs> um so our our next tradition here is mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. we would like you to give a piece of advice and tell us who that advice is for and what
1: it is oh gosh piece of advice um I think this is something when it comes to everybody 16 or above is vote. So Fantastic um you know voting in large important elections is really important but you know try and read about local politics because when it comes to dealing with the impacts of climate change really that is like the simplest thing that everybody can do is you know voting for people in local government and state government that's a great way to help influence mm-hmm you know, how our country is going to deal with climate change. So I think, you know, in Oregon, we have this amazing system where we all get mail-in ballots. So, Mm -hmm. you know, set aside some time, do some research and vote.
0: And that is such a timely reminder as we are coming up on the uh, midterm election. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we do have elections here in corvallis if you're interested in learning more about the uh, mayoral and city council elections you can go to Mm corvallisoregon.gov and they have election information there and yeah fill out your ballots and then finally our last tradition here is to have you pick a song to play out the show too so go ahead and tell us your song and why you picked it
1: Yes, so my song is Rock Lobster because (laughs) I love any song with the word rock in it, however tangentially it may actually be related to rocks. And, you know, we're a couple weeks into the fall semester. We can always use a little bit of joy, and it's hard to get more joyous than the (laughs) B-52s.
0: All right. And with that, thank you so much for coming on the show. And here is Rock Lobster by the B-52s. If you're listening, maybe get up and take a little dance break. We were at a party The air load fell in the gate Someone reached
1: in and grabbed it
2: Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID.
0: This theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Haman. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow the show and podcast to be possible.